Okay, today we are uh, we are in Romans chapter six, and uh, we actually started the chapter last Sunday and looked at the first four verses, and today we want to pick up with verse five and uh, Lord willing, get down through verse eleven. Uh, so let's just read that whole passage beginning in verse 1 and through verse 11 and then we'll kind of try to recall a little bit of what we've talked about so far. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in the likeness of His death, Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay? Look down at those first four verses there in chapter 6 now. And uh, uh, let's see, what can we remember that we talked about last week from those four verses? You all are too quiet. Okay, okay. We've talked a lot about being free from God's wrath, being freed from the penalty that we incurred because of our sin. But now we're dealing in chapter 6 with the subject of the power of sin in the life of the believer. And the question is, all the way through chapter 6, we're going to be dealing with the question of what is the believer's relationship to sin? How are we now freed from the power of sin? So that's... uh, one of the main things we're looking at in chapter 6. What else? The two digits? Oh, the two digits. <laughs> I was trying to think. Two digits. What were we talking about? Two fingers? What were we talking about? I remember what we talked about. Yeah, the two ditches. Okay. What were the two ditches on either side of the road? Antinomianism and legalism. You see, Paul there in verse 1 introduces this question. What? Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? And we suggested that that question that he's addressing could come from either one of two sources. It could either come from uh, someone who's an antinomian, that is, who is against the law. An antinomian was just somebody who just thought the law was irrelevant, that uh, now you're a Christian, you can just live any way you want to. Uh, there's plenty of grace there to go around, so just live however you want to live. So that was the antinomian. And then, of course, the legalist is the person who's afraid of the antinomian. The legalist is the person who's so afraid uh, of grace because they fear that grace will lead to antinomianism. So the legalist wants to make sure that, that, that they are following the law perfectly and that everybody else is too. Okay, So... 
so the question being asked, what? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Could be asked by the antinomian that's suggesting, well, you know, since there's plenty of grace out there to go around and, you know, the more we sin, the more grace we get, let's just, let's just do that. Or the legalist could be saying, could really kind of be asking the question in a sarcastic way. What, Paul, are you suggesting then that, that uh, since we no, we're no longer under the law, that we can just sin all we want and, and, uh, and grace will increase? So that's the kind of the, the two possible sources of the question that he proposes there or that he, that he states there in, in verse 1. What else? Okay, okay, great. The reason the question in verse 1 comes up is because what Paul had just said in the verses just before that in chapter 5, which is what Paul had said is that that the law came in that sin might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And what Paul was saying was that, that in order to reveal our sin and show us what sinners we were, God gave the law. And what the law did, it actually did two things. One is it it showed us our sin, but it also incites sin in the unbeliever, in the unsafe person. It incites sin. It causes them to sin more, and that causes them to see how sinful they are. Okay, so so the coming of the law causes this increase of sin. But he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What he's saying is, this was no. This was no risk. God is not taking a risk here in giving the law and causing sin to increase because there's an abundance of grace, a super, super abundance, superfluous, if you will, amount of grace to cover all the possibility of sin that might happen. So there's plenty of grace out there. Paul did not say that more sin increases grace. He said no matter how much sin is out there, there's plenty of grace to cover it. But when the question comes up in verse 1 of chapter 6, well, what? Shall we sin more that grace might increase? The person is really distorting what Paul said. Paul did not say, well, the more we sin, then that increases grace. Paul had not said that. But when he asks the question and addresses the question in chapter 6, he doesn't go back and show them how they've distorted what he said. But rather, as Sarah was suggesting, he takes it to another whole level. So he, he doesn't he doesn't really answer the question by saying, well, listen, you guys, you, you, you didn't get what I said. You distorted what I said. He doesn't address it that way, but he takes it to this whole other level. And this whole other level is what? OK, this whole idea of death to sin. And then as Sarah pointed out. When Paul talks about the fact that we've died to sin, he's not saying that for the believer, sin is a practical impossibility. He's not saying that it's impossible for the believer to sin. He's just saying that it's a, that it's a, a logical absurdity. It's ridiculous. <laughs> whenever, whenever you and I as believers choose to sin, we're really acting irrationally. That's that's his point. May it never be, he said, because he says, uh, uh, how can the person who has died to sin still live in it? What else did we look at last week? What did Paul think of or what did Paul expect from the Romans as he enters into this discussion? Okay, that they knew that the Romans, these believers, even though he'd never been there and and we don't know how much, you know, as a church, how much training the various believers in the church have had or whatever. We don't we don't know. Uh, But Paul was obviously pretty confident that they knew this whole thing about being dead to sin, that this was common knowledge to them. Why did he assume that? Early on, 
Okay? Okay? Right. Because in the New Testament, when a person got saved, typically they got baptized right away. They didn't wait several weeks or several months or several years in some case. Uh, in some cases, like we do today. But they typically, if a person was saved, oftentimes they'd be baptized within the hour. And certainly within a day or two, they would be baptized. Okay, so that baptism to the New Testament believer was closely in their mind was closely associated with salvation. It was just it was just one, kind of one whole event. It doesn't mean that they viewed baptism as being their means of salvation or the way they were saved, but it was just closely associated with their salvation experience. And in the New Testament, when somebody in the New Testament era, when somebody was about to be baptized. It was apparently explained to them what that baptism meant, what that baptism signified or represented. So that presumably, virtually all believers in a New Testament church understood that when they were saved, they had died to Christ. And that was demonstrated to them by their baptism. So as, they, as they're taken out to the baptismal waters, I don't know exactly how this transpired, but you can kind of imagine it this way. As they're taken out to the baptismal waters to be baptized, they're being instructed as they're walking out there. Now listen, this is what this means. What this means. When you go out there, and we're going to put you under the water and then we're going to bring you back up again. And what this means is it's picturing or it's showing, it's illustrating what's happened to you that you have been buried with Christ and you have died to sin. And, then, and when you come up out of the water, that's a picture of this new life that you are now uh, that you are now participating in or experiencing. Okay. So that to the New Testament believer, this idea of being dead to sin was foundational to their faith. And, and that's, uh, that really strikes me because, because I think oftentimes for us as believers living in the 21st century, particularly here in America, I can't speak for the church all over the world, but I, but but particularly here in America, I wonder how many believers really think as a foundational concept in their faith and as a foundational principle in their daily experience, contemplate and meditate on and live their lives based on this idea that they are dead to sin or that they have died to sin. But this is so absolutely foundational. And the more I study Romans chapter 6, the more I get convinced that it is for the, for the experience, for the daily experience of the believer, one of the most important chapters in all the New Testament. Because it really does set for us how our lives should be lived now as believers on a day-to-day basis. Okay. So, so we discovered then that we have died with sin. we have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and and so that we have died to sin. And then he says in verse four, he says, uh, therefore, since we've been buried with him through baptism, death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. So the reason that we were buried with Christ. The reason that God worked in us so that we would die to sin was, in, was not just so that we would be dead to sin, but in order that what? So that we might walk in a new life. Okay. So, while this idea of being dead to sin goes all the way through Romans chapter 6 and actually into Romans chapter 7, this, and, and, and Paul just develops this and, and kind of beats this drum all the way through chapter 6. Okay, Death to sin really isn't the main point. It's all the way through the chapter, but it's really not the main point that Paul's trying to get to. The real point, the main point Paul's going to get to, and we're going to talk about that some more today, is this idea of new life in Christ. What does it mean to live in the resurrection power of Christ? That's the real point. Okay. So, 
That's what he picks up then in chapter five, uh, chapter six, verse five, which is where we pick it up today. So he says there in, in verse five, he says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So he kind of restates what he's already stated, that we've died with Christ and we've raised with Christ. But then he kind of sets out this kind of conditional sentence. This is that whole apotosis, apotosis thing that we talked about several weeks ago. The apotosis being the conditional, the conditional part of the sentence, the apotosis being the the main part of the sentence, okay? So the, the, the Protestants here or the conditional part of the sentence is if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then the apotosis or the main part of the sentence is certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So in some ways, he's just kind of restating uh, what he said before. But, but he's got a... He's got a method to his madness. He's got, he's got somewhere he's going with this. And this is what we want to explore today. But I have, just kind of to set the context or kind of get us thinking in the right way here, I have a couple questions for you. One is, the first one is, for, for, for we who are believers, how many of you believe that in the end you're going to be raised from the dead? How many of you believe that? you believe it? Okay, okay. What difference did that make for you this morning when you got up? You know, we, we think about resurrection. We, we talk about the resurrection a lot, right? And first when we get around Easter, we talk about the resurrection. And we're, put, we're pretty upbeat about this whole idea of resurrection. But here's my question for you. What difference does it make in your life? What difference does the resurrection make? Or to put it another way, what difference does your hope in your eventual resurrection make in your life? Everything. Can you elaborate? Well, like, you live more freely. I mean, you know, we, I mean, you know, I fear death, but it's not the final thing. Okay. I mean, I have to kind of tell you that, you know, I have thought about when we are resurrected, we're going to wake up and... He will. He will look better than. He will look better than Ginger. (laughs) She looked right at you, Mike, when she said that. (laughs) So it fills our lives with hope, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Fills our lives. What else? Oh, okay. Uh-huh. When Christ went through that, you know, uh-huh. from the baptism to the cross, uh-huh. he had a whole mission. Yeah. But he was working up to the cross. Okay. Okay. And so are we. Okay. Great. Good. Okay. Well, actually, you may have been closer to being there than you thought, as you'll see as we go on today. Okay. Uh, what else? What difference does the resurrection, the idea of your resurrection, what difference does that make in your life? I know Ginger kind of said it all when she said everything, but <laughs> can anybody else want to elaborate? <laughs> okay. 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 You know, people go all the time, how can you handle that? Well, one's not our handle. Yeah. And so, and he's made a comment that, you know, he sees a difference in the believers and how they go into uh huh. Okay. So, in, in one sense, it helps us cope with this whole fear of death thing, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. Because we find that we actually realize that even our present circumstances are only temporary. Okay. So, it's just, we just have to work through it. Okay. And it'll be better on the other side. Okay. These are all great answers. And these are all true. Oh, Sarah, yeah. I think um, it, um, it helps me trust. Okay. Okay. Even when I see that there's no possible way okay. to make the money stretch. So sure. It, it helps me hand everything over to him. Great. 
good. Yeah. Well, all of these, all of these are, are wonderful ways that the resurrection affects our life. Today, what we want to talk about is another way that Paul expects and the Lord expects the resurrection of Christ and the hope of the resurrection and the certainty of the resurrection, our resurrection in, with, with Him because of Him, our resurrection, how that influences our daily life. Okay? So, so that's kind of where he's going with this. Now, as I mentioned last week, this whole idea about being dead to sin, I mean, Paul's pretty clear in this chapter, right? He's pretty clear. We've, we've died to sin. We've been buried with Christ. Uh, sin is no longer our master. All that sort of stuff. He's, all, he's very emphatic about that. And, and uh, as I said, as we go through chapter 6, we've got another couple weeks uh, in chapter 6. You know, it's something we're going to think about a lot. But, but oftentimes, in our daily experience, how oftentimes do we find that it's just not quite the reality. You know, have, have you ever felt that struggle? You read Romans chapter 6 and you go, well, if I'm dead to sin, then why, why am I living the way I'm living? Why do I so oftentimes fail when I'm faced with temptation? Why do I so oftentimes fail if, if I'm really dead to sin? So the question, the question I'm asking, and this is the question I've wrestled with for many years as I've really tried to confront Romans chapter 6 in my own life, I've said, God, I want Romans 6 to be my everyday experience. That's what I really want. And there are a number of days in which I have to confess Romans 6 isn't my experience for, uh, you know, for significant portions of any given day, right? So the question is, if, is all this true or is this just a bunch of gobbledygook that Paul's just saying because it sounds good? Or is it really possible for you and I as believers to live on a consistent basis, on a daily basis, as though we were dead to sin? That's clearly what Paul expects. So why doesn't it happen? Well, that's one of the things I want to explore today. He says in verse 5, if we have become united, and when he says if, it's not, condition, it's not an if like, well, maybe, or well, if this were to happen type of thing, but he's using it in the sense of since. Since we have died. Okay, since we've been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, because he's already established right in the first four verses that we have. He's made it very clear that, in fact, is what happened. And that's what our baptism represented. It represented that we had been buried with Christ and that we had died to sin. Since that is true, he says, certainly we shall also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So, because this is true over here, that I have died with Christ, then there's something else that's certain. And that certain thing is that I will be united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, just for point of clarification, you notice Paul uses the word likeness there. or It's translated, it's, it's kind of put in there by our commentators, but it's implied in the text the idea of the likeness, okay? It's because there are some significant differences between Christ's death and our death uh, uh, to sin, okay? There are some, obviously, some clear differences. Christ never sinned. So there's a different sense. In some, in some ways, there's a different sense in which Christ died to sin than we died to sin, okay? Because he was never a slave of sin as we were. So, uh, so there are some differences, but there are also some striking similarities, okay? There is some sense in which when Christ hung there on the cross and he was crucified, we were crucified with him. That old self was crucified with him. Okay. And in the same way, there is some likeness. We are not going to be raised exactly. Uh, there are some differences between how Christ was raised 
and, 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 and what happened after his resurrection and our resurrection. There'll be some differences, but there are important similarities. Okay? And it's those similarities that Paul is stressing. It's that, that association or that identification with what happened to Christ in his death and in his resurrection that we, that we as believers encounter this, this identification with Christ. So there's some sense in which I'm identified with Christ in his death and so I have died to sin and I am identified with Christ in his resurrection and so I will be raised from the dead. And he says here, it's a certainty. Certainly, he says, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. (coughs) Now, what Paul appears to be talking about here because you'll notice when he talks about having died to Christ, he talks in the past tense. But in, when he talks about what's certain, he's talking about he's talking in the future tense. Certainly, we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right. So it's apparent that what Paul is talking about here in verse five is this thing that we were that I was just questioning you about a minute ago. Our actual resurrection from the dead, our physical resurrection at the end. Okay. That's apparently what Paul has in mind. And because he says Christ raised from the dead and because we are in some way united with him in his resurrection, we will also come up out of the grave. We believe that. We're certain of that. I mean, we're as certain of that as about anything we can be. You know, Christians debate about a lot of things in their theology, right? We argue about a lot of things, but there's one thing we Christians don't argue about. We're going to raise from the dead. We all agree on that, don't we? You know, there are a lot of things we disagree on, but we agree we're certain about this, that because Christ raised from the dead, we will raise from the dead. That's probably why there's such an attack on the resurrection of Christ to this privilege. Yeah, yeah. So... Now, he, having said that, which is kind of a restatement of what he said in four, we died with Christ, we raised with Christ, and he talks about this resurrection idea. Okay, then he goes on in the next few verses, and at first in verses uh, six and seven, he he kind of encapsulates again or talks again about this idea of being dead to sin, and then. He goes on and he talks in verses 8, 9, and 10 about this idea of being united with Christ in his life and what did it mean when Christ rose from the dead. And so what we want to think about today is uh, some, some we want to think about the implications of this idea of death again, but then we want to go on from that and we want to ask ourselves, what is Christ's life like now that he is raised from the dead? Because that is the connection with this whole idea of what it means to be dead to sin. Okay? And that's what Paul is developing here. So it's a little, uh, you know, on the first reading, it may be a little bit difficult to grasp, but hopefully we can get to a point where we can understand it. So, he has stated again, if this, if dead to sin, or if, if united in the likeness of his death, then also united in the likeness of his resurrection... So over here's the death. Over here's the resurrection. We're united with Christ in both. One in the past. One in the future. Now how does that all relate to this whole idea of our daily experience and our relationship to sin? That's where he goes. So in verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. So, he's made his statement in verse 5, if this, then certainly this. Then in verses 6 and 7, he goes back and he looks at this, which is this whole idea of death. And he says there's certain things we know about this idea of death and identification with Christ in his death. What are the things we know? Knowing this, verse 6. Our 
Our old self is crucified. Okay? Our old self is crucified with him. And I like the way that Paul does this. I like it that here he doesn't say, like he did in verses 1 through 4, our old self died with Christ. But he actually, goes, he actually uses the word crucified. And I like that. <clears throat> I like thinking of having that old self of mine brutally murdered. <laughs> Think about this. For those of you who saw it, the movie The Passion of the Christ. You know, the brutality of what Christ went through. Okay. Uh, well, I got good news for you, folks. That's what your old self's gone through. It has been brutally murdered. That's what Paul's saying, right? We know this. We know that when we came to Christ, our old self was identified with Him in His crucifixion. Now, I don't understand all the mystery of that, and there's a great deal of mystery of it, but it's pretty exciting to me to think about that old self getting that treatment that Jesus got. Because that's what it deserved. And I'm glad it got it. That old self was crucified with Christ. What does he mean by the old self? What he's talking about there is that person you were before you came to Christ. He's talking about that person who was under Adam's headship. Yeah? That person who was under the curse that Adam introduced into the world. Okay? That's who he's talking about. He's talking about the old person that you were pre-Christ. That old person you were who lived as a slave of sin and who lived by the dictates of the world and who lived by the philosophy and the mindset of the world. Okay? That old person was crucified in Christ. Why? Why was it crucified in Christ? Verse 6. What was the purpose? In order that what? That the body of sin would be done away with. Okay? So... The old self was crucified so that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, when he uses body of sin there, we need to be careful with that. Excuse me. We need to be careful with that because it doesn't say, and several commentators are quick to point this out, I think it's good, he doesn't say the sinful body. Okay. There's no, there's no teaching in Scripture anywhere that our bodies are inherently sinful. Okay. That's an old... When I say old, we're saying two to three thousand years old. That's an old Platonic concept that actually permeated the church for about a thousand years. Uh, actually still does in many circles. It's this old Platonic dualism that says that the spiritual world up here, that's good, but everything physical, the physical world and our physical bodies, that's all bad. So anything that you're doing pertaining to the physical, that, you know, that's just, that's just dirty, evil stuff. And the stuff you do with the spirits, that's all good. And, you know, and, and so that's, that's a platonic dualism that, that uh, Scripture nowhere teaches. Okay. So Paul is not suggesting here, it's not when he's talking here about our body of death being done away with, or body of sin, he's not suggesting here that there's something inherently evil about our bodies. In fact, I would suggest he's not even really talking about our physical bodies at all. Because he uses it synonymously with the old self in the previous phrase. The old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be done away with. So the emphasis here in the second phrase is not so much on, you know, what does it mean, the body of sin. That's just the old self he's just been talking about, which we have just established as what? What did I just say the old self is? The person you were before Christ. Okay? So, but what, what is important in this second phrase, 
of the second clause, is what happened to this body of sin and what happened to the body of sin. It's done away with, okay? Now, Paul's using a word there that can be translated several different ways and the New American has translated it done away with. But probably the best way to understand the word here is the idea that it's not so much that it's been annihilated, but rather that it's been rendered completely impotent. It's been, it's been rendered powerless. Okay? So, I was crucified. When I came to Christ and placed my faith in Christ, I became united with Him in His death such that my old self was crucified with Him in order that that old self, that body of sin, would be made powerless. And it was made powerless for what purpose? The next clause. Why did he make it powerless? So I would no longer be a slave to it. A slave to sin. So this is the good news. The good news is that I somehow, in some wonderful and some mysterious way, was united with Christ in the likeness of His death. In order that the old self would be crucified. That the body of sin would be done away with so that I would no longer be a slave of sin. So that I would no longer be a slave of sin. So that I no longer would be a slave of sin. So that I no longer would be a slave of sin. How many times do I have to say that before I believe it? How many times in our lives do we live our lives as believers? We live our lives as though sin still has power over us. Oh, I, I can't help it. I, I just got a hot temper, and you know, so I just fly off the handle, you know. Or I can't help it if I think these really depressing, horrible thoughts because, you know, that's that's just my, you know, that's just my makeup. I, you know, I'm just kind of a pessimist, and so that's just the way I think, you know. And we talk and we live and we act so oftentimes as Christians as though sin still had power over us. And that's why I think for most Christians they might as well just cut Romans 6 out of their Bible. Because they really don't believe it. But now I know, according to Paul, who's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that I've been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be rendered powerless and impotent and, and have no longer that I would be a slave of sin. Because whoever's died is freed from sin, verse 7. All right? So why? Why, why do we as Christians, and there's an answer to this question, so don't give up here. Why do we as Christians so often live, and in our experience we go, this Romans 6 stuff doesn't work for me. I'm going to run over to Romans 7 and reinterpret it different than the way Paul meant it and use that as an excuse to sin. Okay. Okay, we do. And Paul will deal with that as we get later in Romans 6. He's going to start saying, okay, now listen, we got a choice to make. Okay. I know our nature, you know, there's a battle in but sometimes we just say, hey, you know, this time I just want to. Okay. Yeah. Or we're just 
sleep at the wheel spiritually, we, we react humanly okay okay I think all of that's true the question is why has that happened and I think it's because we missed Paul's second point you see Paul's argument doesn't stop with this idea of being dead to sin does it where does he go after dead to sin that's probably ahead of you but I like 12 and 13 Okay, but you are ahead of me. <laughs> life. Life. Resurrection power. Okay? So there's the dead there's the dead to sin over here, but but that's not the whole truth. And the reason so oftentimes we never grasp this part is because we're just trying to grasp this part. The part about being dead to sin. And the reason that doesn't work is because it's not the whole truth. And anytime you take only half the truth of Scripture, the truth of Scripture doesn't work, right? It's only part of the truth. It's the part, it is true, and it is important, and it is crucial that we understand that we're dead to sin, but we have been crucified with Christ, we have died with Christ in order that what? we might live a new life. And so he picks that up in verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10. And he says, okay, now you've been identified with Christ. So now, so now you know, identified, united with Him in His death. You know what that means. You were crucified with Him. The old man was killed. Uh, you're now free from sin. Okay, you know that. But also, remember, you were also united with Christ in His Resurrection. Okay. And what that means is that ultimately you're going to raise from the dead, right? We know that. We're all certain of that. We agree to that. Okay. Believers worldwide believe this much together. We're going to raise from the dead. But just as we know that we identified with Christ, we united with Christ in his death, and so being united with something that happened in the past means something for us today. Being united with Christ and this thing that's going to happen in the future also has some bearing or some relevance today. And the secret to that, the key to that, there are no secrets in Scripture, but the key to that is understanding what is this resurrection life of Christ like. So that's what he says in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him. Now, what is this life that Christ lives like? He says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. What? Death what? <laughs> Death is no longer master over him. Because, he says... In verse 10, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. I'm struck by, oh, oh, yeah. That verse, about that one verse right there was an incredible form of that's great. Okay, great. Good. Yeah, that's good. Now, there is a passage that says, I die daily, but he's talking about something different there. <clears throat> he's, he's talking about something different there. He's not talking about the kind of thing we're talking about. That's a great point, Gary. What is Christ's life like now? Now that he's raised from the dead, what's his life like? He's in glory. And what's he doing in glory? Well, he's praying for us, yeah. yeah. But what's the main thing he's doing in glory? According to this verse. He's living to God. 
There are a couple passages in the Gospels that strike me. They give me a picture of Jesus when He's here on earth and doing the thing that He came to earth to do, which was to deal with sin and to make Himself volitionally to put Himself under sin and death. So He never sinned, but He put Himself under the curse of sin and He made, and he made death His master. Notice how it says in this verse, it's no longer His master. That implies it was His master. Okay. Now, it wasn't his master in the sense that he had no choice in it. He volitionally submitted to death, and it became his master, and he went through death. Okay. So, this is what he was doing on earth. But there are a couple, there are a couple kind of telling things, there are probably more, but there are two in particular that come to my mind in the Gospels about the life of Christ on this earth. And one of them is, remember the Mount of Transfiguration? He goes up on the mountain, he has this really cool experience, and you know, and he sees Moses and Elijah and the disciples that are with him, going, oh, this is pretty cool, let's keep this up. You know, and so he has this really wonderful Transfiguration experience where he's kind of with God again, you know, for this little brief time during his time on earth. And then he comes down off the mountain, and you remember what happened? When he came off the Mount of Transfiguration, what's the first thing that happened? The disciples stayed down there, couldn't heal somebody, and there was a big ruckus why they couldn't heal him. Yeah, the guy was demon possessed, and they couldn't cast it. So they, as soon as they see Jesus coming off the mountain, they wrote, Lord, and they come back with all their problems. You know, you know what Jesus says? This is really a, I think it's a telling thing. He says, "Well, before he says that." How long do I have to put up with you? Isn't that amazing? What I get this picture of Jesus is just he's here on the earth and he's going through and he just wants to go back to heaven and get this over with. How long do I have to put up with you guys? This is really not very fun. I want to go back where life is beautiful. Right? That's what he wanted to do. And then the other picture I get, and it's a little more positive, but it still has a lot of pathos in it to me, and that's in John 17 when Jesus is praying to the Father. Remember, he prays all for his disciples and everything, but one of the things he says is, okay, Father, now it's time. Would you glorify me with the glory I had with you before this? Before the beginning. That's what he wanted. And even when he was on earth, that's what his heart yearned for. And what is fantastic is that when Christ raised from the dead, that's where he went. He ascended into heaven. And right now, while you and I are sitting here in this classroom, struggling with this whole idea of what it means to be dead to sin, Christ is in heaven living to the Father. They're enjoying each other. I mean, you know, they're still dealing with us. You know, that's, that's baggage they have to deal with because they made us, so you've got to deal with it, Lord. But, but Jesus is just up there and He's just pleasing the Father. And He's enjoying the Father. And He's doing the Father's will. He's doing it right now, folks. While we're sitting here, you know, struggling with sin, he's up there doing that. And he's enjoying the Father taking pleasure in him. He's enjoying the Father loving him. That's resurrection life. That's resurrection life. Living to God. Right? Look what he says. Even so, Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think that one of the reasons that, that we struggle so much to actually get to experience this whole thing about being dead to sin is because we're not living to God. We're not living to God. We're not, in our day-to-day life, we're still going, okay, here's this temptation, how am I going to deal with it? Okay, here's this temptation, how am I going to deal with it? Instead of living our lives going, hmm, 
Just got up this morning. Wonder if I can shave to the glory of God. Are you kidding, Rick? No, I'm not kidding. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And if I, when I got up in the morning, instead of thinking about all my creaks and groans and pains, contemplated, this is a day that I get to enjoy God. This is the day I get to worship Him. This is the day I get to take pleasure in Him and enjoy His pleasure in me. This is the day that I get to live the resurrection life of Christ in my life because He's made that possible by my identification and union with Him. Now, I'm not saying that every single minute of every single day we have to be thinking about God. But what I am saying is that to the degree, I believe, that our lives are consumed with living them to God, living our lives with reference to God, as we do that, when we are confronted with temptation, temptation has lost its power over us. And the reason we don't so often experience that is because we're really not living our lives to God. We get up and we just kind of go through our mundane day and you go through things. And, and to be honest with you, you know, He's kind of just over there. But when I'm walking through Walmart, I'm not thinking about doing it for the glory of God. And so I walk through Walmart and instead of thinking about walking through Walmart for the glory of God and doing it to God, I see those dirty magazines over there and my eye goes over there. But if I was thinking about walking through Walmart for the glory of God, that's not where my eye would go. If when that person crosses me in traffic, if I'm driving driving, uh, to work for the glory of God, and to God, and I'm doing this because I love Him, and I'm enjoying Him, and He's enjoying me, and we're having a great time, and some guy cuts me off in traffic, I'm not going to run him over. Jesus didn't have to deal with traffic. <laughs> <laughs> but He did, didn't He? He did. He did, and, and then He got to where He is. And now we're identified with Him. You see why Romans 6 is so important? Oh, I wish we could just camp in Romans 6. You, you, by the time we get done, you're going to think we did. But I wish we could just camp in Romans 6 because I really do think this is a wonderful chapter. Because this is a chapter about living the resurrection power of Christ and life of Christ in our day today. If you are so sure, as you all seem to be at the beginning of our lesson today, that you're going to raise from the dead, If you're so sure of that, then today, when you leave church and you go home, consider yourselves to be alive to God. And if you consider yourselves to be alive to God and consider yourselves to be dead to sin, if you do those two things, you will have a much more victorious day than if you forget either one of those. They've got to come together. You can't do one without the other. You can't live to God and not remember you're dead to sin. And you can't be successful in denying sin in your life. You can't be successful with the dead to sin part if you're not living to God. They come together. You've got to do them together. And if we do them together, folks, we're going to start to, we're going to, start to find Romans 6 pretty exciting instead of this oppressive chapter that just convicts us because we're not experiencing it. Okay? All right. Okay.